This morning we begin with a pop quiz. I know that you weren't expecting that. That's why we call it a pop quiz. Uh, it's, it's, it's really not a very difficult question. There's only one question on the quiz, but you must participate or you will be dismissed. Okay, maybe not. Here's the question. Does a fence post abide in the dirt? How many of you answer yes in the affirmative, that a fence post does abide in the dirt? All right, thank you for those hands. How many of you would say a fence post does not abide in the dirt? And I uh, thank you for those hands. I'm going to grade those answers right now. <laughs> and you will be pleased to know that all of you get 100%. If you were to turn in the dictionary and look up the word abide, you would find that it means to stay, to remain, to continue, to dwell. Does a fence post remain, stay, continue, dwell in the dirt? Answer, yeah. Now, most of you answered that question because of your knowledge of the New Testament and that specific word as it is used largely by the Apostle John. He adds this element to that word, abide. Yes, to abide means to stay, to remain, to continue, to dwell. It also means to draw from, to benefit from. In that definition, that expanded definition, a fence post does not abide in the dirt. Ah, but a tree root does. Because that tree root is, is drawing from the dirt water and nutrients. There is life. There is, there is a relationship there. In John chapter 15, Jesus uses this word, abide. And he says this in chapter 15, verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. There is a in this, in this understanding of abide, there is a, a remaining, a staying, a continuing, a dwelling, a drawing from, a benefit from my relationship with Jesus. It's an unbroken relationship. That abiding means that there is a continual drawing, a continual benefiting, if that kind of relationship stops, it's just a fence post. Now, to maintain that kind of a relationship takes a great deal of, of time and effort and energy. It's costly to have an abiding relationship. I want you to listen to words of J.C. Ryle. It costs something to be a Christian, exclamation point, he writes. Let that never be forgotten. To be a mere nominal Christian, to go to church, uh, I'm sorry, let me start that sentence again. To be a nominal Christian and go to church is cheap and easy work. Let me pause for just a second. That we might label that fence post Christianity. But to hear Christ's voice, 
To follow Christ, to believe in Christ, to confess Christ requires much self-denial. It will cost us our sins, our self-righteousness, our ease, our worldliness. All, all must be given up. Our Lord Jesus Christ would have us thoroughly understand this. He bids us to count the cost. The Lord Jesus does not cause us, call us to be a fence post stuck in the dirt, surrounded by Christian people. He calls us to abide in him, to draw from him, benefit from him, to stay, to continue to dwell with him. It's a relationship. This morning we are in John chapter 8. This is now the third week where we are in this extended conversation that Jesus has with a number of Jews. And there is a great deal of confusion, a, a, a great deal of angst, because Jesus is presenting himself to the Jews as the Messiah, the long-awaited, long-expected expression of God, the Savior of the world, the Redeemer. And they could not, would not accept it. Last week we looked at verse 24. There was, there was a line that Jesus drew in the sand and he was calling these Jews to step over in faith. This is the warning. He says, Unless you believe that I am, I am he, you will die in your sins. A sober, sober warning. But last week as we concluded our time, it ended on a positive note. Verse 30 of John chapter 8 reads, As he spoke these things, many came to believe in him. I continue, verse 31. So Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. They answered him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say, you will become free. Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are Abraham's descendants, yet you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak the things which I have seen with my Father. Therefore, you also do the things which you heard from your Father. They answered him and said, Abraham is our Father. Jesus said to them, If you are Abraham's children, do the deeds of Abraham. But as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth which I heard from God, this Abraham did not do. You are doing the deeds of your father. They said to him, We were not born of fornication. We have one father, God. Jesus said to them, If God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and have come from God. For I have not even come on my own initiative, but he sent me. Why do you not understand that I, what I am saying? It is because you cannot hear my word. You were of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whatever he speaks 
whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I speak the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? If I speak truth, why do you not believe me? He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason, you do not hear them, because you are not of God. The Jews answered and said to him, Do we not say rightly that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my Father, and you dishonor me. But I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks and judges. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, and the prophets also. And you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death? Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom, whom do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. And you have not come to know him, but I know him. And if I say that I do not know him, I will be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. Therefore they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. There's a great deal of, great deal of ink that has been spread trying to answer the question, to whom is Jesus speaking? Verse 30 says that there were many that came to believe him, and then in verse 31, John identifies the, the audience in Jesus' mind as those who had believed on him. Well, are these genuine believers? Because the vast bulk of this entire conversation, particularly the, the, the last uh, couple dozen verses, are very hostile toward Jesus. The Jews wanted to kill him. Certainly these are not believers, genuine believers, that are in Jesus' purview and, and uh, part of the conversation. Well, it, it wouldn't be a surprise that there are um, a, a mixed group of people in this uh, audience for Jesus. Some that are genuine believers and others that are not. And it wouldn't surprise us at all that those who believe, in air quotes, did not genuinely believe, did not genuinely trust. That's a possibility. These would be what Jesus called uh, stony ground hearers. You remember the um, parable of the soils in uh, John, or, or rather Luke chapter 8, verse 13. Jesus said those on the rocky soil are those who when they hear receive the word with joy and these have no firm root. They believe for a while and in time of temptation fall away. We might add in this context, um, in, in times of uh, persecution, belittling, they fall away. 
We have seen in John's gospel already that there are those who believe in air quotes, but they don't genuinely believe. They're not genuine disciples. In chapter 2, after Jesus revealed himself to the nation by um, great miracles, uh, the one, the water to wine that we find at the early part of the chapter is but one. And uh, Jesus goes to Jerusalem, verse 23, at the, at the Passover during the feast. Many believed in his name, it says, observing the signs, plural, which he was doing. So there were many miraculous deeds and, and there were many that believed. But then it continues Jesus, on his part, was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. He knew their hearts. They were posers. They said they believed, but they didn't really believe. In John chapter 6, you remember, after uh, Jesus fed the, uh, the, uh, the, the, uh, the 5,000 men, uh, plus women and children, with a, with a paltry lunch, verse uh, 14 says that people saw this sign, and they said, this is truly the prophet who has come into the world. And then the next verse tells us that they, they want to force him to be their king, their miracle-working king. Chapter 66, or verse 66 of, of John chapter 6 tells us that as a result of his words, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. They were posers. They were fence post Christians. They were simply stuck in the dirt. They weren't drawing anything from Jesus or the life of the community. They weren't the real deal. So in John chapter 8, we have this group of people that Jesus is addressing that are obviously very hostile, angry, interested in eliminating him are these who are believers, in air quotes, the genuine real deal? Or are they simply fence post Christians? Well, fortunately for us, we don't have to answer that question. We can leave that to the Lord. I don't know. I would like to think that there were those hearing Jesus' testimony that genuinely stepped across the line and said, Lord, we are with you no matter what. So in the rest of this chapter, in the rest of this conversation, they are the silent minority in, light, in, in contrast to the rabid majority that want Jesus gone. I would like to think that they are genuine believers. But not knowing that for sure, we do know this. In this text of Scripture, we can draw out principles of what a genuine believer looks like. And we can also deduce some character qualities of those who are unbelievers. What are they like? The line in the sand remains. It's bold. And it's a clear demarcation of, of those who are with Jesus, abiding in him, and those who are not. Those who are not may be fence posts, stuck within the church, but they are not abiding. Five marks of a true disciple. Number one, follow along in your notes. Consuming the word of Christ. Look at verse 31 again. Jesus was saying to the Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine. The word translated continue in the New American Standard uh, rightly connotes uh, an, an ongoing activity here, but it's the same Greek word that Jesus used in John chapter 15, verse 4. four translated abide. 
It's the same word, and we could very easily translate that, this. If you continue to abide in my word, then you are truly my disciples. Jesus is, is not giving us a condition for discipleship. He's not saying, if you continue in my word, then at a future time, you will be qualified uh, to or, or allowed to become a disciple. No, he said, this is a condition. Those continuing to abide in my word are my true disciples. A true disciple is marked by continuing, abiding in his word, which I have translated by the first point. It is to be consumed with, or to consume, or to be consumed by the word of the Lord. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 4, every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God is how we are to live. Paul pressed us, Colossians chapter 3, let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Acts chapter 2 verse 42 tells us that the early church believers um, continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. Paul told the Ephesian elders that the word of God builds us up. Ezra the scribe articulated the place of God's word in our lives. He said in Psalm 119, the law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Your law is my delight. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. And so it is uh, by the pen of the Apostle Peter, this exhortation, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word. It is characteristic of those who are genuine disciples. They want to be in God's word. They love God's word. They read God's word. They meditate on God's word. They study God's word because that is the way by which we know the living God. Charles Spurgeon, 1834 to 1892. He's called uh, the Prince of Preachers because of the superlative gifts that the Lord gave him, mentally, spiritually, physically, that, that allowed him to be such a clear, resonant voice of biblical truth. I want to read you part of his sermon, a sermon that he preached in 1855 when he was 21 years of age. Let me say one thing before I pass on to the second point. If this be the word of God, what will become of some of you who have not read it for the last month? Month, sir? I have not read it at all this year. Aye, there are some of you who have not read it at all. Most people treat the Bible very politely. They have a small pocket volume neatly bound. They put a, put a, a, a white pocket handkerchief around it and, and carry it to their places of worship. And when, when they get home, they lay it in a drawer until next Sunday morning. Then it comes out again for a little bit of a treat and goes to the chapel. That is all the poor Bible gets in the way of an erring. That is your style of entertaining this heavenly messenger. There is dust enough on some of your Bibles to write damnation with your fingers. There are some of you who have not turned over your Bible for a long, long, long while. And what think you? I tell you blunt words, but true words. What will God say at last? Shall, shall you come before him when you come before him? 
he shall say, did you read my Bible? No. Rebel, I have sent thee a letter inviting thee to me. Didst thou ever read it? Lord, I never broke the seal. I kept it shut up. Wretch, says God, then thou deservest hell. If I have sent thee a loving epistle and thou wouldst not even break the seal, what shall I do to thee? Oh, let it not be so. Be Bible readers. Be Bible searchers. I might add, be Bible abiders. Drink from it. Meditate on it. Benefit from it. Draw life from it. It is our sustenance. On another occasion, Spurgeon said this, a Bible which is falling apart usually belongs to someone who isn't. Second John chapter, or Second John verse nine. Anyone who goes too far and does not abide in the teaching of Christ does not have God. If we do not abide in the teaching of Christ, we do not belong to God. First Mark, Jesus mentions, of a true disciple, is that we are consumed with, consumed by. We are consumers of the Word of God. Second, knowing the truth of Christ. Returning again to our text, verse 31, so Jesus was saying to these Jews who had believed in him, if you continue in my word, then you are truly disciples of mine, and you will know the truth. Jesus said in his high priestly prayer, John chapter 17, thy word is truth. But people in our day don't tolerate such language. In years past, um, we, we have, have lived in the age of the Enlightenment when, when human reason and rationality were at the forefront and celebrated. We, we, we went from the Enlightenment into the period of modernity and from uh, that, that, that um, dittoed the same. But now we live in a postmodern culture where we have questioned, doubted, eschewed man's ability for reasoning and rationality. And we hear words like, what truth? There is no truth. Truth is relative. Truth is what you make it. But those who are genuine believers, born of God, know the truth. Sadly, the ways and the thinking of the world has influenced the church, and dramatically so. Newsweek magazine, August 2005, I believe it was, uh, printed a poll, the results of a poll of um, citizens in the United States. 85% of, of those polled identifying themselves as Christians. I put that in air quotes, I should. 85% said that there are more than one way to heaven. 91% of United States uh, Roman Catholics agreed. 
This flies in the face of what Jesus said in John chapter 14, where he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father but through me. Those who are genuine disciples know the truth. We know the truth intellectually, and we know the truth experientially. We are living it. We are seeing it lived out, not only in my life, but in the lives of my brothers and sisters in Christ. Indeed, I could look and, and see the prophetic hand of God manifested and displayed in the world around me. I see the truth. I know the truth. Psalm 31 saw, or in Isaiah 65 say that uh, the Father is the God of truth. I put a number of, of uh, texts here from John's Gospel and Epistle where, where the Apostle John identifies the Holy Spirit as the Spirit of truth. Jesus said, he was the truth. I am the truth. Psalm 117, Psalm 119 says that the, the word of God is true. It is eternal. It is fixed. It is unchanging. It is truth. One quality of true disciples is that we, we know that truth. We know that truth from Scripture. As we continue to abide in the Scriptures, we understand that it is truth. God has revealed himself here. Second page of your notes. Point number three, characteristic number three. True disciples... Walk in freedom in Christ. Verse 31 again in our text. If you continue in my word, Jesus said, then you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will make you free. Now the response in verse 33 would lead us to believe that there are other people Besides those that are either fence post Christians or the real deal, there are other people in this, this crowd that then speak up because they're offended. Verse 33, they answer Jesus, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Well, I want us to stay on task. I don't, don't want us to get a sidelight sideline on, onto um, characteristics of those that are unbelievers. We'll get there next week. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to save comments about that particular verse uh, for next week because Jesus launches into it um, a, a little bit later. Hold that, hold that thought till next Lord's Day. Look at verse 34. Jesus answered him, Truly, truly, I say to you, Amen, amen. Take heed. Get out your pencil, sharpen it, take notes. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Well, now Jesus has offended every person on the planet because he's saying, that if you continue in sin, you are a slave to that sin. Now, the natural man says, what, what, what's, one, what's one drink, right? I, I mean, really, I, I can handle this. Or pornography is such an overrated sin. I mean, I, I, could, I could stop it at any time. Really. 
We love it and we hate it all at the same moment. And we continue it in it. That is evidence of the fact that we are enslaved. Now, the, the kinds of sins that we can be enslaved to are, are, are multicolored. There are all kinds of things. I, I can be a slave to myself. I can be a slave to my pride. I can be a slave to um, so many things. Sin, Satan, fear. I, I can be a slave to other people and what they think of me. H.G. Wells um, uh, bemoaned this. He said, The voice of our neighbors sounds louder in our ears than the voice of God. The Greek philosopher Socrates astutely asked, How can you call a man free when his pleasures rule over him? We're not free at all. We are enslaved. Truly, truly, Jesus says, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is the slave of sin. Mm. The Greek historian Herodotus once told a foreigner, quote, you don't know what freedom is. If you did, you'd fight for it with your bare hands. I might add, we don't know how enslaved we are. If we did, we'd fight against it with our bare hands. But you know, even if we did fight against it with our bare hands... We wouldn't get very far because we're enslaved to it. As much as we hate our sin, we saddle right up to it. Thankfully, Jesus has done the work for us. He has given us the ability to conquer this temptation whatever that temptation might be. As he began his uh, public ministry, he said these words in a synagogue on the Sabbath day in his hometown of Nazareth. He's quoting from Isaiah 61, and he said, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives. Freedom. In our text, Jesus says, in verse, 30 said, verse 36, If the Son makes you free, you will be free indeed. Oh, yeah. Free from guilt. Free from condemnation. Free from ignorance. Free from falsehood. Free from spiritual death. Free from the demanding power of sin, eventually free from the very presence of sin, all because of Christ. We sing these words by Charles Wesley with regularity. Listen, this is verse 4. Long my imprisoned spirit lay, fast bound in sin and nature's night. Thine eye diffused a quickening ray. I woke, the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. I rose, went forth, and followed thee. Amazing love. How can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me?
True disciples are marked by being consumed by the Word of God. They know the truth. They walk in freedom. Fourth, they obey Christ. Back in our text, verse 35, Jesus says, The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son does remain forever. So if the son makes you free, you will be free indeed. In verse 35, you'll notice that the word son, in the NAS text anyway, um, is, is in with, with a lowercase s. The same word in verse 36 is with an uppercase s. So the son, generically in verse 35, is a reference to the son of God in verse 36. Now just make, make, make a note of that. Let me, uh, let me go back to verse 36. And the principle here is the slave not remaining in the house forever. A a slave can be bought and and traded and sold. Uh, Slaves come and they go. But Jesus' point is, the son remains. The son belongs. The son's part of the family. He's an integral part of the family. Jesus' point here is, the, the son is the one who has authority in the household. The Son does the will of the Father. So, verse 36, the Son of God does the will of the Father and has the authority of the Father. And He is the one who has the power, the ability, and the will, the desire to make free those who are slaves. Now, if Jesus has authority... If he is the one who is running the household, he is the one who is to be obeyed. You see, all these character qualities of, of a true disciple are all linked together. Those who continue in his word are those that obey that word. The Puritan Thomas Watson wrote, Doers of the word are the best hearers because they hear in order to obey. By Christ's authority, by his work on the cross, we are given freedom. Those who continue in his word, those who know the truth, these are the ones that are set free. They are free in order to obey. Now, allow your mind to to wrap around this truth. True freedom does not mean license to do whatsoever you want to do. People will try to persuade you of that fact. Oh, it's my body. I can do with it as I choose. What a twisted sense of freedom. Let's say worldly sense of freedom. A biblical sense of freedom is, is I, I, I am free not to, with a license to do whatsoever I please. To be free means that I am now liberated to do as I ought. I am liberated to do as I have been created to do. I, I can't do just whatever I want. God has done his perfect work in me for a purpose. Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10 says that, that we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. He has poured out his grace in me that I may do the good works he has ordained for me to do. I've been given liberty to obey him. 
Now, I know the, uh, the analogy breaks down a little bit here, but these liberated slaves in this household that are uh, still o- obedient to the son and serve the son are at the same time, we learn elsewhere in Scripture, not here in this text, but, but for the sake of fullness and completeness, um, these liberated slaves, true believers, true disciples, are fellow heirs with Christ. We have been adopted into God's family. That's mind-boggling. Those who have offended God, chosen to go their own way, now by the work of someone else, certainly not our own, we haven't earned our way here, he calls us to be his children, sons and daughters of the living God. How can we do anything but obey him? Fifth, we imitate Christ. Look at the first part of verse 38. Jesus says, I speak the things which I have seen with my Father. Now, this is not a new concept for us. If you look back at chapter 5 of uh, John's Gospel, verse 19, Jesus said, Truly, truly, amen, amen. Sharpen your pencils, take notes. I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. So when Jesus says to Philip, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, Jesus is the perfect reflection of the Father. Jesus perfectly imitates the Father. What the Father says, the Son says. What the Father does, the Son does. To see what Jesus does, to hear what Jesus says, is to see and to hear what the Father does and says. There is a perfect imitation there. So there is to be among his disciples that same emulation, that same imitation. Will it be perfect? No. Our desire is to make it the closest imitation possible. Last week, I took you to the Alamo. And I returned there this week on a wall at the Alamo in San Antonio, there is a plaque and a picture. The plaque um, has an inscription. I'll, re- I'll read that in just a moment, but I, I, I want to uh, um, just put, put back in your mind at, at that battle where the Texans were fighting against the Mexican army. All of those that stepped across the line, drawn by uh, Colonel William Travis. All of those men died, except for just a couple, those strategically chosen by the Mexican General Santa Ana as a warning. He sent them on to say, if, if, you, um, if you, you continue to fight against me, this is what will happen to you just like what happened at the Alamo. Well, there were about 200 men that, that died there at the Alamo. Um, the, the number of Santa Ana's men um, were um, astronomical compared with what was lost uh, among the Texans at the Alamo. Um, William Travis died. Uh, James Bowie died. Davy Crockett died. A man by the name of Jim Bonham also died there at the Alamo. And this plaque and uh, the, the portrait, um, well, the, the inscription of the portrait reads this way. James Butler Bonham, 
No picture of him exists. This portrait is of his nephew, Major James Bonham, deceased, who greatly resembled his uncle. It is placed here by the family that people may know the appearance of the man who died for freedom. There's no literal portrait of Jesus, of course. But the likeness of the Son is to be seen in his disciples. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that by the power of the risen Christ, those demons that have hounded us, those sins that have overtaken us, have been conquered by Christ. Find us a group of people that are hungry to know you, hungry to turn very, very frequently to Scripture, to read, to meditate, to memorize, to consume it, that we might be consumed by you. We might know you. We might follow you. We might have freedom, freedom to obey you. Father, in that in that process of being made like Christ, being imitators of him, we pray that you would be the one glorified at all times. We ask in the name of the risen Savior.